Thank you, Don. Thank you for that prayer. Um, I'm sure y'all have been watching the news. There is a storm that hit the coast of North Carolina, um, and uh, it's been on every radio station, every time you turn the TV on, newsprint, all that kind of stuff. So we do want to keep those folks in our prayers, and we'll just see in the coming weeks if there's some way that our church can reach out and be a part of relieving some of the suffering that's going on um, and the rebuilding effort. Um, our scripture comes today from Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background about that. Um, Moses is in the midst of a speech here, like right in the middle of the speech. Pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving a speech. He's standing on uh, Mount Pisgah. Don't quote me on that. He's standing on a mountain looking out over Israel, and he's not in the promised land, and he's going to die within the next few hours. Um, God's going to whisk him away, and um, Moses is kind of giving a, hey, here's the things I want you to know as you're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 15, this is just one of the items, one of the things that's on Moses' heart, that's on God's heart, and we see there that God has a heart for the poor. Now, liberal theorists will tell you that the solution for poverty in the world is to deal with things like racial prejudice and economic deprivation and joblessness and other inequities, to try and level the playing field between the rich and the poor, get even distribution. And that's what the liberal theorists would say, this is the solution to poverty. In other words, just throw money at it. Um, the other solution is conservatives on the other side, conservative uh, theorists who would say, you know what, we blame the breakdown of the family for poverty that's in our world. And so the solution to that is self-control. The solution to that is discipline. Um, and so poverty can be eliminated uh, through that means, through, through you know, living a better life, making better decisions. Well, what we find is that, and I'm not here to give you a, a solution to how we can end poverty in the world today. Um, anyhow, but maybe we'll save that for next week. Um, but in any case, today we just want to talk about the subject of poverty because really the, the solution lies in both of those things. It lies in both dealing with inequities, but also in dealing with um, how people live their lives and the kind of decisions that they make. So it's really kind of a both and. Now we're in a series called God at Work, and one of the places where God's heart is to be at work is amongst the poor. And we see this as a consistent theme throughout all the Bible. It's right here in this passage that, um, that Moses, preached, or Moses teaches on here in Deuteronomy 15. And so um, let's turn to the scriptures now to see what Moses has to say and what he reveals about God's heart for the poor. Would you stand with me? We're going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 8, and then verses 11, or I'm sorry, 10 through 11. All right, here we go. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so I just want to walk through these verses together. Again, Moses is communicating God's thoughts here, God's heart to the people of Israel. And in this particular time, he's talking about the subject of people who are in poverty. And so let's just kind of walk through these verses together. We're going to begin at verse 7. 
says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you. Remember, Moses is standing up there. I believe it's on Mount... Did somebody correct me on that? We don't have Terry here today. Is it Mount Pisgah? Is that right? Yeah, okay, I think so. Works for me. And so, um, so he's standing out here on this mountain, and he can see in the distance, he can see way off in the distance, the, the promised land, and he's talking to all the people of Israel. And so he says to them, hey, look, if somebody amongst you all becomes poor, here's what you are to do. Um, verse 7, he says, don't harden your heart to that person, and don't shut your hand against your poor brother. That is, don't refuse them help. Don't refuse them aid. Don't refuse them relief. Instead, verse 8, you shall open your hand to your poor brother and lend him whatever he needs, whatever it may be that he needs. Now, if you know anything about Jewish people, they have a reputation. Anybody know what that reputation is? They are stingy, right? I'm not trying to bite you, but I mean like money in the hand, right? And so they're, they're, they can be a little greedy. They can be a little stingy. So I imagine that this message probably wasn't received really well um, by the Israelites and because they're kind of a stingy, kind of pension pennies kind of people. And so Moses says, hey, look, if you want to be stingy when it comes to uh, agreeing on a price for your wool or what you're going to pay for somebody's grain for that year, okay, you can go ahead and, and, and banter about on that. He says, but when it comes to the poor, you're to be generous. The universal sign for greed, again, is that dollar grasping a tight, closed fist. God says, don't be like that to the poor. He literally says, be open-handed, right? The opposite of greed. He says, be open-handed in how you uh, treat the poor. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging. In other words, you don't do this begrudgingly, right, when you give to him. But because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And so, Moses says, hey, look, there's a reciprocal relationship between your giving to those that are in need and God's blessing over your life. God's going to see that you took care of the poor, and God in return is going to re reap that same blessing back upon you. Now, this is not prosperity gospel. This is Moses' clear teaching from Scripture. Jesus himself repeated the same thing. He taught the same principle that God will see our generosity, that God will log that, and that he will visit that generosity back upon us, perhaps in a time that we have need ourselves, or perhaps just in some other open-handed way. Last verse, verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall be open, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So what's revealed here in this speech that Moses is giving, remember there's just one little part of a big long speech that he gives, and in this particular part of the speech, what is revealed is God's heart for the poor, that God cares for those who have very little. God loves those who have meager uh, subsistence, but that God is cognizant of their plight, that he gives ear to their cry, that God is moved with compassion for the poor. And this is the consistent message all throughout the Bible. Psalm chapter 12 and verse 5 says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will arise, says the Lord. God says, I see that. I see those needs. I'm going to arise. I'm going to begin to move on their behalf. I will place for him in, the, in a place of safety for which he longs. That is, God looks out for the poor. Job, in talking about God's view of things, said, Job chapter 34 and verse 19, that God shows no partiality to princes, that is, to important people, and God does not favor the rich over the poor, rather he considers them all the work of his hands. So God doesn't play favorites between who has and those that don't. God says, hey, look, I see all of my creation as equal and as having potential in my eyes. 
Skipping forward to the New Testament, Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah saying, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus, because um, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. Jesus instructed in a parable that he taught one time, Luke chapter 14 and verse 13. He said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, invite the cripple, invite the beggar, invite the lame, invite the blind. Invite those who are vulnerable in society to your table. Invite them in and be able to share what God has blessed with you with them. And the writers of the New Testament echo this same perspective. Listen to James, the brother of Jesus. He writes James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? No one says, hey, look, I'm a Christian, but they don't have any works to back that up. They don't have any evidence that they have this Christian walk with God. Can faith save him? For example, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, hope you get something in your tummy, have a great day, hope that works out for you. But James says, hey, look, without giving them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? To just wish somebody well, send them on their way, but not do anything to take care of their most basic physical needs? The Apostle Paul is about ready to set out on one of his missionary journeys, and he's um, talking with Peter, James, and John, the, re- the re- pillars of the church, and he says, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, that Peter, James, and John asked us, Paul and Barnabas, as they headed out on their journey, to remember the poor, Paul says, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now, where did Paul and James and Peter and John get these ideas of this perspective of the poor? Well, they got them from the Lord Jesus. And where did the Lord Jesus get this perspective about how we are to treat and take care of the poor? The Lord Jesus got his perspective of that from his participation in the Godhead. That's where Jesus got it from. Friends, God has a heart for the poor. It's at the core of who he is. Now, all of this raises a couple of questions. And the first of those questions is, is, is God not like rich people? Is God against wealth? Is it sinful to have a bank account loaded with a bunch of money? Uh, because, you know, some people would say, they'd read some of these scriptures in the Bible and say, well, it sounds like God is for the poor, that he gives preferential treatment to the poor, and so therefore we just can conclude that God is against wealth. Well, the simple answer to that is absolutely not. No, God is not against wealth. In fact, God himself blessed Abraham, father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, with tremendous wealth. God blessed David and his son Solomon with great, vast riches. God is not against wealth, friends. What God is against is when wealth becomes an idol in a person's life, when we put money before him. And quite frankly, friends, you don't have to be rich to do that. I've known plenty of middle-class folks. I've known plenty of people who didn't have much at all, who were living paycheck to paycheck, and they have worshipped their money, and they have worshipped their stuff. It's all about an attitude of the heart, not how big a person's bank account is. That's what God sees. God is not looking for how much money we have. God's looking at what do you worship. Second question that maybe we have is who do I help then? Like, uh, am I just supposed to help out fellow Christians? Am I supposed to help out family members? I mean, where's the limit? Is there some boundary here as far as that goes? Is this charity, is this generosity supposed to extend beyond just people that I know, just Christians? Look back at Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11. It says, God commands this. He says, you shall open wide your hand to your who? Your brother. That is to your fellow 
Israelite, um, to the needy, to the poor in your land. He didn't say down in Egypt. He didn't say up in Pakistan. He didn't say over in India. He said in your land. So it's quite clear, at least in this passage, that God is talking about poor Israelite, not just anybody, but he's talking about poor Israelites. However, Jesus expands on this command when he tells a parable of the Good Samaritan, and he asks the question, who is your neighbor? And we learn from that parable that Jesus teaches that your neighbor is a person that goes beyond just national Israel. This is one of the problems that Israel's having. They were only taking care of themselves, and Jesus steps into that and says, hold on, time out here. This is not right. This is not what God wants to see. He wants to see you taking care of people beyond your ethnicity, people beyond your religious beliefs. Everyone qualifies in Jesus' economy as our neighbor, which is why Jesus agreed in Luke chapter 10 and verse 27 that the second greatest command of God is to love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? According to Jesus, it crosses racial lines, it crosses political and religious boundaries. Everyone is our neighbor. Y'all doing okay? Okay, I just want to summarize real quick, see what we've learned so far, okay? Number one, we've learned that the consistent teaching throughout all of the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that God has a heart for the poor, that God has a special place in his heart, and he commands his people to share those concerns that God our Father has for the poor. Number two, we learn that God is not against wealth. He has blessed many people throughout the Bible with wealth, but what God is against is he's, he's against making an idol out of money. And number three, we learn that God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves extends to those who are not like us, whether in faith or race or ethnicity. Okay. Got that? Good? All right, well, that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, that's really good that God teaches that. Okay, I got it. He has a heart for the poor. Uh, let's call it a day and head on home. Well, hang on just a second. Um, let's, let's talk about that idea of what difference all this has to your life and to mine, because I think it would be really helpful if we took a moment to put some handles on this. It's like, okay, well, I know God has a heart for the poor, but what does that look like practically? What does that mean for me in my life where I'm living? Like, what, how do I do that? Does it mean that I just I stroke a check, I write a check and help somebody out, help some organization out? Is that what we're talking about here? What does God intend for me in terms of my help with the poor? Well, I want to give you three ways, three uh, practical things that you can do um, in helping the poor in your own life. Number one is to build relationships with those that you help. You know, we've, I think in America, we have come to a place where we are willing to write a check, but we're not willing to inconvenience ourselves. We're not willing to step into a situation and get to know someone and really help out in a relational way the people that are in, in need. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I went to the Austin P game that Georgia played Austin P. Anybody there? Lost about five pounds while I was there at the ball game. It was really hot. And so we walked into the stadium, and uh, Claire was with me, and there was another couple that we were with. They invited us to go with them. And so we're standing there in the stadium, and um, I was waiting on Claire. She had to go run an errand real quick, and so I was waiting on her to come back. 
And as I'm standing there in this big crowd, I just walked in through the gates, I don't know, south side, north side, I don't know, I don't know all that many games, but I think it was the south side gate. Anyways, I'm standing there, and so there's just throngs of people walking past me, right? And people going this way, people coming from all directions. I'm just standing there waiting for Claire to come back. And this black guy walks past me, and I just had him on the left side of my eye, just kind of caught him as he was heading by me, and then he, he was gone. And I turned, and I saw him heading away from me. He had on a dry fit shirt, and he was a big dude right? He had a big old trapezius muscles right here, big giant shoulders, big arms. I mean, he was wide. And I saw him from the front and just for, just for a half a second. And I was like, wow, no, 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 no. That would, what would he even be doing here? Why, why would that guy be here? And I mean, walking through here all by himself. And so I went into, on into the stadium. We got up into our seats and we're sitting there. We're watching the game and a little bit probably late into the first, first quarter, I see one of the players walk out on the field and he has Holyfield across the back of his jersey. So who did I see? Evander. That's right. His daddy was there. And then so it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I forgot that his son had a... So that was really Evander Holyfield. I and mean, he walked right by me. And he was, he looked like, he's 55 years old. He looked like he could still get into the ring and take some people out. I mean, he was, he was an intense looking guy. And so, um, but anyway, I thought it was interesting um, that I just, we did a little Google search, right, to see what's Evander Holyfield's net worth. Right? What's Vander Holyfield up to these days? And so I did a little Google search. And so I don't know if this is accurate or not. Um, but in any case, what I discovered was that over the course of his career of boxing, um, and he was the champ, right? He grossed $500 million in fighting fees. Now, the government got half. <clears throat> and uh, his Don, what was the, what's the guy's name, the big promoter, Don... King, right, probably got another half of the half, but never the, never the case. Uh, I mean, a couple hundred million dollars the guy had to his name to be able to live out the rest of his life. He lives down in the Fayetteville area, built this massive palatial mansion. I looked it up online, um, and it had like fountains, like Greek fountains out behind the house. It was a hundred and some odd rooms, 54,000 some odd square foot home. I mean, this is unreal what he built. And so just live life at the largest. But then as you continue reading through it, it says that he owes $500,000 in back uh, child support. He has 11 children by six different women. Um, he is broke today. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and we both were just, as I was sharing some of these statistics with him, we're like, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did, I mean, I can imagine how that happened, but wouldn't somebody come alongside this guy and say, no, time out here. You know, even, even, even wealth, even wealthy people are on a budget. And, and you're just burning through everything that you got. And, uh, and just help him to understand, to be able to manage the money and, and this responsibility that he had been given and blessed with. 55 years old, I and mean, he's not that far removed from his last fight, right? Was that the Mike Tyson one? I, don't I didn't notice whether or not he had had surgery or repair or not. But in any case, I just thought to myself, you know, how, I mean, how could a guy, how could somebody not step up and say, I'll just, I'll work for you for free. I just want to, I just want to help you out. I don't want any of your money. Somebody step into the midst of that and just help him get things straightened out relationships relationships friends he had all this money and yet it didn't solve his irresponsibility with money it didn't solve his poverty 
problem. He ended up right back in the same place from which he had come. You know, the conservative theorist says that you can't just launch another government program and expect that to solve the issue. Governments have been throwing money at poverty for decades. They've been throwing money at poverty for generations and programs. And it has created a toxic environment of dependency and entitlement. Money alone will not solve the problem of poverty. It takes people who care. People who are not in it for the benefit of themselves, but for the benefit of the one to whom they are trying to help in relationship with them, walking alongside them, helping them to manage the the funds that they've been given. Number two, a second practical way that you can share in God's heart for the poor is that if you are an employer, pay your workers a fair wage. Pay them a livable wage. You say, Gordon, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. Indeed, indeed I have. You know, I was really pleased after the uh, tax cut, 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 cut bill was passed. Y'all remember the tax cut, 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 cut bill? Our president calls it that. Um, And so companies like Walmart and companies like Home Depot and many others raised their starting pay salary to $15 an hour. And I was really happy when I saw that. They didn't have to do that. But they chose to. They chose to share some of the profits that they were now generating as a result of less taxes, corporate taxes that they were having to pay, with the people who were under their employ. It's called trickle-down economics. Now, I'm not advocating here this morning for a higher minimum wage. Don't get me wrong, but let's be honest. The folks stocking the shelves at Walmart, these are not entry-level jobs for many of them. For many of them, this is where they're going to work. This is where they're going to spend a portion of their career. And so because of that, this is their livelihood. And so making a wage that they can, you know, uh, that's livable for them, I thought that showed a lot of character. And I, showed that, so I thought that showed a lot of class on the part of those, um, of those organizations, those big companies to do that. So if your profits are up, share that with your employees. Let trickle-down economics go into effect in your own workplace. For years, I have heard small business owners complain about the amount of taxes that they've had to pay, and I agree taxes are legalized theft. It's what they are. It is making legal, stealing money from people and taking it. And Anyhow, but we won't get into that today. Maybe another day we'll get into that. Um, if your profits are up, combine that with the factor that taxes are lower and be willing to share with your loyal, hardworking people the blessings that God has visited upon you. Number three, and finally, a third way that you can share in God's heart for the poor is simply to open your eyes to the needs of others around you. Friends, this is what Jesus did. The little children wanted to come and sit with Jesus, wanted to come and be around Jesus. He said, don't prohibit them from coming to me, but rather allow them to come to me. He was moved with compassion for the crowds that hadn't had a meal all day, and so he fed 5,000 of them. He raised to life the son of a widow because, you know, a widow back in those days, um, you know, she had no way to provide for herself. Her husband had died. Men made all the money back then. It was a strong patriarchal culture, and so she had no husband, and now her son is dead. I mean, she has no income. And so Jesus, recognizing that out of compassion, Uh, brought her son back to life. You know, there are some great organizations out there, 
Organizations like Acts, our church participates with them. Organizations like Christian City, who helps orphans and brings them uh, aid and need. Um, and these are great organizations, and we, our church gives liberally to these. But sometimes the best way that you and I can help is not by writing a check, but by getting involved personally, by opening our eyes to the situations that are right under our nose, that are right in our backyard. Um, so it may be an elderly friend who needs you to check in on them. It may be becoming a foster parent. It may look like helping a family in crisis who's just lost everything because of a big flood and a hurricane. Uh, Jesus didn't meet everyone's needs the world over. He didn't, but he did bring hope and help to those with whom he made contact. You say, well, Gordon, I hear what you're saying, but you are so nice. You are so naive. I mean, I've tried this before. I've had people at my workplace or people in my family or my neighbors that I've tried to help out. And when I did, guess what they did? They lapsed right back into the same old dumb decisions and they were right back where they were when I started trying to help them out. Or they took advantage of the help that I was trying to give them or the relief that I was trying to give them. They lied to me. So what do you say to that? Well, first of all, let me say that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine, he knew in that moment that we would take advantage of his forgiveness and that it wouldn't be the last time that he had to forgive you or that he had to forgive me. Jesus knew that when he hung on the cross that we would sin again anyway. Jesus knew that when he entered into a personal relationship with you and with me, that we would still have need of his forgiveness. And yet, he entered into that relationship with us anyway. It's called grace. And I'm so thankful for God's grace. Grace is God's undeserved mercy. So yes, when you try to help people out, the likelihood that you'll be taken advantage of is probably pretty high. Or the likelihood that they may relapse back into some bad decisions is, may happen. And so we do need boundaries. And the Bible talks about those boundaries, that we give help, but we also come to a point where we say no. And so the Bible walks that balance for us. But the point I'm making here today is that, friends, we don't refuse the help because we're worried about being taken advantage of. God's heart is for the poor. Jesus said, I came to bring good news to those that are disenfranchised. I came to bring good news to those that are vulnerable in society. God has a heart for the poor. And just as Jesus Christ showed us great grace and continues to do so, we must do the same for others. It's been, uh, been many years ago uh, when Claire and I moved here to to this area. Um, I'm going to say 11, 11 years ago, um, we moved here to this area. And so um, when we moved here, I was working here at the church part-time, and I was also, uh, if, I don't know if y'all, some of y'all hadn't been around that long, but for those of you that have been here since the beginning days, I was driving a school bus from Walton County. Part, so part-time job there, part-time job here, put the two together, you get full-time wages or something like that, right? And so, you know, our family was struggling. And uh, we were, I, I can remember a time in those first couple of years that we were here, where we might have had $500 to our name. 
uh, didn't even have $1,000 saved up in a savings account. And, um, and we were living paycheck to paycheck. And one of the Sunday school classes here at the church took up a collection. for. Uh, we didn't ask for it. We didn't tell anybody about the needs that we had going on. Um, but one of the Sunday school classes just observed that, you know what, I think Gordon and Claire could maybe use some generosity. And they took up a collection for us. And this guy up here showed up one day after church and just put in my hands an envelope that had a sum of money in it, some cash in it, that the, that the Sunday school class had just impromptu decided that they wanted to give to us. Friends, I will never forget your kindness. I will never forget your generosity. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you love us. You watch over us. And Lord, you do have a big, giant heart for those that have great need. First of all, you give them, you give us all, your son. But Lord, also you want to meet those physical needs. You said pray for our daily bread because you care that we get daily bread. God, may we be moved today. May we be moved to see some needs right in our own backyard. Of those that could use a helping hand. It may be a family coming up at Christmas time. It may be some folks that are trying to put their lives back together after this past week. Whatever it may be, Lord, as your spirit speaks to us, as you instruct us, as you have been at work in our heart, may we respond obediently. May we be grace to those in need. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our closing song.